Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Ever wished you could concentrate harder or for longer? It's probably one of the challenges I've heard most often from students, especially for those of you still stuck in the world of virtual learning. But I hope today's episode can help a little, because I'm joined by James Lang, university professor and highly respected education writer, whose book, Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It, really took the world by storm when it was published last year. Jim's agreed to come on the show today to help us understand just why focus can be so difficult and to give us some really practical strategies to help us concentrate better in a whole range of different circumstances. There's some great tips coming up in this. So let's meet James and get right into today's conversation. Yep, my name is Jim Lang. I'm a, a professor of English at Assumption University in Massachusetts in the United States. I also direct our Center for Teaching Excellence, which is like a resource and support center for faculty. And I've written quite a few books, and the most recent one is about distraction and attention and the role that attention plays in learning uh, and the role that distraction can play in interfering with learning. Uh, And so I like to kind of think about the issues that are facing educators and students today and consider what kinds of strategies we can use in order to promote the best possible learning. I think we're in for a great conversation, James. Perhaps why don't we start with that? So tell us a little bit about the role that attention does play in learning. Well, attention is actually the kind of foundation for learning. No learning will happen unless, um, you know, the student or whoever the learner might be pays a kind of initial attention to the material. Um, So we might think about the fact that a lot of things need to happen in order for something to be learned deeply. And that would include they have to be able to process the material, sort of encode it into their brains. You need to be able to retrieve it later, for example. That whole process has to start with attention. And so if we don't take that first fundamental step, no learning is going to happen. So managing attention, really important for all the stages of, of learning then. One of the things I thought was, was, has been really fascinating in, in kind of getting into to your material in particular is how a lot of us might think that you know attention is, is a scarce resource and that's a particularly unique phenomenon in the modern world with all the pings and technological notifications and smartphones and laptops and all the rest of it bombarding us with all these distractions. But it's not necessarily the case that mankind's struggle with distraction is just a phenomenon of recent years. I mean, one of the things that the most fundamental things about it is that it is a limited capacity resource. We only have so much attention to give. You can be very easily pulled away from what you're trying to pay attention to by all kinds of things. And that's always been the case. So, you know, we can look at that both from a historical and biological perspective. Historically, you know, we can go back to the writers of antiquity, to, you know, our ancient religious texts, and we find people talking about their easily distractible minds. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this is Aristotle talking in the ethics about the fact that, you know, when the acting is bad in a play, people are more likely to eat their snacks, for example, right? Or he'll also talk about when, another point in the ethics, when people are listening to an argument, um, if they enjoy flute playing and they hear a flute being played somewhere, they're going to stop paying attention to the argument and start listening to that flute playing. And so we have all kinds of examples of people talking about this throughout history. And then from a biological perspective, of course, it made sense for us to be able to pay attention to something. And, you know, that's sort of helpful 
for us in evolutionary terms, but it would not have been helpful for us in evolutionary terms for us to be able to pay attention and completely block out everything around us because that would have subjected us to dangers, right? So I might be, you know, stalking a prey, but then not be aware of the fact that I'm a potential prey myself, right? So like um, our attention systems actually are capable of both focusing on something, but then kind of being aware of like the ambient surroundings and being aware of the environment and in some ways drawn to like novelties in the environment because that was helpful to us. And so even though, you know, obviously we, we've evolved a long way, we still have that kind of basic functions in our brain. So, you know, we love novelty. We love to get kind of like bursts of novelty and new information. And obviously our devices provide us with that. So what I like to say to people is we've always had easily distractible brains. What's changed is that our devices are very good at playing on that feature of our brains. And they're much better at it than they used to be, right? Like, so, you know, when I was young, I could be easily distracted by the television, but I had to walk across the room and turn it on, right? Like, or you know, find the remote to turn it on. And so now television or whatever, a million other things are available to me in my pocket all the time. So that's really the difference is our, our technologies have gotten really good at playing on our distractible brains. Yeah. Our distractible brains helped keep us alive, but uh, in modern day humanity, it can cause us a few issues. Exactly. And I love that quote from Aristotle. That's great. That's such a wonderful bit of historical context. So one of the challenges of managing attention in the modern world, you, you mentioned devices. And one of the things I, I particularly enjoyed reading your, your book on the subject, Distracted, was when you talked about the thought process by which you came up with the technology policy for, for your own classroom. I thought it'd be just interesting to share a little bit of that thought process with people now. So a lot of teachers have been wrestling with what to do about devices in the classroom for a decade or two now and have landed on, you know, one of two sort of extreme positions. On the one hand, no devices in the classroom and they're just a distraction to my students and I don't want that interfering with what's going to go on in my classroom. And the other is to just sort of students are going to do what they can, are going to do and I'm, I'm going to do my thing and I'm just going to hope for the best. And I don't think actually either of those extreme policies is the right one. In my view, we need to think about the context of what's happening in the classroom in order to make a good decision about whether or not students should be using devices. For example, if I'm giving a lecture and I want my students to be able to take notes and come back to those notes later and maybe reorganize those notes, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't allow the students to use their laptops. But, you know, if we're doing something like I teach British literature and if we're teaching a work of literature that I believe is meaningful to the students and I want to try and bring that out or I want to give them an opportunity to brainstorm about what they're going to write their essays about, we shouldn't need our devices then. Like all we need really is our sort of our brains and our good ideas and our attention to one another. And so whatever policies we have about devices should be context specific. They should depend upon what we're doing. And when we think about it like that, it actually encourages the teacher to think through what are we doing? Why am I doing? And what's the thing that's going to be most helpful to students when it comes to available technologies? So that's my basic approach toward it. But the other important thing to me is to be empathetic and to, to recognize that students struggle with attention because we all struggle with attention. Like, you know, I'm as easily distracted by my phone as they are. So I want to try and create a policy and, and, and present it to the students in a way that says, hey, look, this is a challenge for all of us now, but what we want to try to do is think together about what's going to be most helpful to your learning. I ultimately want you to succeed in the class. And so we're going to try to agree upon some strategies that we're going to take in here that will be most helpful to you. And I do try to invite the students to give me feedback on the policy that I create so that they have more of a sense of control over it. 
Yeah, nice. So the kind of involving students in in evolving those those policies, and th- and then also you know no perhaps one size fits all. You know more of a context dependent approach. Yes, I don't think there's any problem in education that we can't make progress toward solving without asking students about it. So like I think that's the first thing that you know we should do when we when we're encountering a difficult problem in in our classes and our education. Find a way to get the perspective of the students. Like why is this happening? You know, I've often found myself surprised at like this isn't happening for the reason I thought it was happening. There's actually something else going on here. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't asked the students about it. Absolutely. So we kind of talked about the classroom domain a little bit. The challenge for a student of, of managing your relationship with a device obviously extends to your, your independent study as well. I wondered if you had any particular advice for our student listeners on that relationship with your devices and you know any practical advice you'd have on getting that relationship right so that you can concentrate to the best of your ability, both in class and in your independent study. Yeah, so we have lots of evidence that shows us that students study in the presence of multiple screens. Um, so we know that, and you know, there's there's studies that have shown that sometimes students can have as many as six screens open on various things, you know. And we also know it's not great for learning. And the issue here is is not so much that you can't study and do something else; it's that you can't study and do something else that's using a similar part of your brain. So, for example, you could listen to like you know a lecture, for example, and be folding your laundry. There's not going to be a lot of interference there. Folding your laundry doesn't draw on the same kind of parts of your brain that would be used when you're listening to a lecture and trying to process and think about it. But what you can't really do is listen to a lecture and also be watching the television, right? Because you've got two different streams of talk coming in at the same time. You can't really like listen to a lecture and be even listening to music that has lyrics that you like, like, and you like that band because you like their lyrics, right? Like that's again going to kind of, because both those things involve words and processing words, again, that's going to interfere. So, so we know that for sure. So like the first thing students just need to recognize is like, if you're going to do something else, make sure it's not something that's similar to what you're trying to do. So like, don't be, you know, watching television, don't be, you know, listening to lyrics and stuff while you're trying to process language. The second thing is the kind of frequent back and forth thing between like, I'm going to study for 30 seconds, then I'm going to look at my phone, then I'm going to go back for 30 seconds. And that kind of constant motion between your study and something else, what sometimes people call multitasking, it's actually just fast switching between tasks. And when we do that kind of fast switching, it degrades our ability to learn. We don't pay as much attention to either thing because there's a kind of trailing effect. So like when I come back from my phone, trying to get back into my study, it actually kind of takes a while for me to like let go of the phone and, and get fully back into the study. So that's the other thing we need students need to be careful about is that kind of very frequent going back and forth between your devices and your studying. So the easiest solution here, not only for students, but really for everybody, is to identify the things that are most important for you to do and to try to block out times where you have just sort of put your screens away, your other screens away, the other things that you might be doing, for example, even if you're studying on your laptop, close out the other tabs, close out your email, and just focus on that one thing. And it doesn't have to be long. You know, you can make a 15 to 30 minute period where you are focused on that stuff and then reward yourself. Like then say, okay, now I get five minutes to look at whatever's come up on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it might be. So, you know, there's a technique called the Pomodoro technique, which is, you know, explicitly doing this where you set a timer, actually, you study to that timer, then you get to take your break, then you reset the timer. That's really, it's the simplest, but it's the best thing to do because you want to just think about what's the, like I said, the most important thing for you to do. Like in my case, 
you know, I do this with my writing. I don't do it when I'm like responding to email or like, you know, trying to do something for a committee or, you know, that kind of stuff. It's fine. I've got multiple tabs open and I can go between stuff because it doesn't require like my full attention to do a lot of that kind of stuff. But the thing that does require my full attention and is going to suffer without it is my writing. So like when I write, I do block times out. I know I could typically will do like 45 minutes and then I get 15 minutes to do whatever I want to do. And then I go back and do another 45 minutes. And I might do that two or three times. And that's typically enough writing for me for a day. So, you know, that's, I think what students, that's going to be the easiest and the best thing for them to do. So being careful with your, your multitasking, ideally focusing on one thing at once, even if you do have to use a device for your studying, then can you close down some of those excess tabs, maybe put your device on airplane mode or disconnect from Wi-Fi if you can. And then working in those those kind of very deliberate, okay, I'm going to focus for the next 45 minutes and then reward myself with a little break, being sure to kind of separate out the technology time into your breaks and not have it encroach too much on the on the focus time as well. You know, what I say to my own children, just flip your phone over, put it face down. Like Sometimes I know that like my son who wrestles with the middle will put it in another room to resist the temptation. If you can resist the temptation, have an, a clock somewhere else or set your timer on your phone. And that's really the easiest way to accomplish it. I sometimes use the Forest app for doing Pomodoro timing on my phone and it has little messages. So if you happen to look at your phone, it'll come up with a message that's, put your phone down, <laughs> get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> while, we're, while we're chatting about practical ideas for students, I also wanted to put the challenge to you of focusing from a student's perspective in class. I'd love to hear if you've got any thoughts on what students themselves could do to help themselves when they're trying to concentrate, when they're trying to pay attention in a classroom, or particularly at the moment when they're trying to pay attention to a virtual classroom environment. Is there anything else beyond what we've talked about with devices that might help them stay focused and, and stay on task in those kinds of situations? You've got to engage. Like You have to do something. I mean, the easiest and most natural thing for us to do in, in a class is to take notes. So you know, if a student really wants to be engaged, kind of just make an effort to kind of continuously take notes. And, the, you know, even if it's a discussion or something like that, write down whatever ideas occur to you or write down, you know, when you, you hear a good comment from one of your peers, take that down. So the best thing to do is just just to make sure that, you know, when, you, when you're just kind of sitting there and you're listening, one of the things that we know about our attention is it fatigues over time. So it can be difficult. It can be really difficult to sit through a 50 or 75 minute lecture, especially if you're not really doing anything, if you're just kind of sort of trying to listen. And I know this from my own experience as well. Like when I go to a lecture from, you know, one of my peers or a colleague or at a conference or something like that, my mind absolutely will drift unless I make a deliberate effort to take notes throughout the lecture. So, you know, that's the best thing to do is to take those notes. And once again, if you choose to take those notes on your laptop, make sure everything is closed out. And so that you're not tempted to go and look at what's going on. And so, you know, in every lecture, in every class, there's going to be like slow moments, right? Where the lecturer is repeating himself, where there's a pause. And in those moments, you know, your temptation is going to be, oh, I've got my Instagram open. I'll just go check that real quick, right? And then you get lost in it. And so then, you know, for the next three minutes when the lecture has restarted, um, you, you've lost that time, right? So the best thing you can do is to try to eliminate the temptations and then to engage yourself. So be taking notes on whatever's going in the room. Even like something like doodling is not a bad idea because if it's between that and you kind of just completely exiting the room mentally, it'd be better for you to doodle. You know, drawing pictures or making little graphics or whatever, especially if they're inspired by something that the person has said, that kind of can keep you engaged rather than having you just completely absent yourself from the room. As students can 
try to make an effort to be a participant too, right? Like, so a student could make a resolution to say, I'm going to raise my hand, you know, and try to ask a question or make a comment twice during every class, right? And so like, that's going to keep you also engaged. And that's going to keep you kind of thinking about, well, what kind, what am I, what am I going to say? What kind what response did I get? Um, so that too would keep you engaged. So a, a resolution to be more of an active participant in a discussion or even to ask a question at a lecture, um, that too is going to very much keep your, your brain engaged. I think that's smart. And maybe I'll just share one thing extra that I teach on this as well, which I think is quite uh, quite a good tangent from from what you were just saying. One of the practices I often teach in, in my work is keeping a memory journal. So if you're in a situation where you're in classes every day, learning new material, taking 10 minutes at the end of the day just to journal without reference to your notes on the kind of the key things you can remember learning that day. Great opportunity to do some spaced retrieval practice, of course, which we talked about on the podcast in previous episodes, and, and you know you yourself mentioned uh, towards the start of our conversation. But it's more than that as well, because what students tell me when they start to get into this practice is that when they're sitting there in class, they know that they will be accountable to themselves later that night to write down some key points, to remember some key points from from the from the lecture or the, or the lesson, and just that accountability to yourself later on in the day can often be a really powerful tool to help maximise your your engagement. With, with the material. Yeah, that's a great idea. Could also be reminding themselves about that accountability for this, like, what am I going to use this for? Thinking about what they're going to do in the future. The memory journal is a great alternative to just thinking about the fact that I'm going to be tested on it, for example, or I'm going to have to write an essay about it. So it, it would add to that sense of purposefulness in being in the class or listening to the lecture or participating in the discussion. Absolutely. I want to also ask you from the teacher's perspective as well, because we, you know, we have a few educators listening in as well, faced with the same challenge, so helping maximise concentration in a classroom environment. I know you've literally written a whole book on the subject, so <laughs> I'm not expecting you to <laughs> regurgitate everything. But I wonder perhaps if you could surface maybe one or two of your favourite ideas, uh, perhaps beyond what we've talked about already with regards to technology, that you feel might be particularly helpful for, for kind of teachers and educators to hear. A few things. First, you know, I think it's really important to try to cultivate a sense of community in the classroom and to acknowledge that we pay attention to the people that pay attention to us, right? So like if I'm sitting across from you at a, at a, at a meal and you're on your phone the entire time, I'm going to start to lose my attention in the conversation and my attention to you. And I'm going to start going on my phone myself, right? But if we're sitting at a dinner table and you're kind of looking at me and, and, and talking to me and really engaging with me, then I'm more likely to repay that attention to you. So I think that it's really important for educators to think about the attention they are paying to their students, making sure that we learn students' names, that we use their names, um, that we encourage them to learn one another's names, to cultivate a sense of community in the classroom, because attention really is reciprocal. We pay attention to the people that pay attention to us. So the more that educators can do to cultivate that sense of community, the stronger a foundation you are laying for attention in the classroom. Secondly, I think the structure is really important. In the book, I write about, you know, the idea of sort of teaching like a playwright, thinking about like, what does a playwright do in order to keep people's attention? Well, there's a lot of variety and change over the course of a play. There's, there's breaks in between scenes and acts. There might be an intermission. Um, there's movement from different sort of scenes from one scene to the next, where it might be sort of a quiet scene where it's just one person on the stage and the next one, there's a bunch of people and a lot of noise and action. And so, you know, playwrights are very aware of the fact that if you want to keep someone's attention sitting in a dark space in a chair for two or three hours, you've got to build a structure that provides for variety and change. And I think that teachers can learn a lot from that, actually, uh, and think about their teaching in kind of a modular way, right? So like over the course of a 50 minutes or an hour, or whatever it might be, we're going to do four different things. Uh, and those things are going to kind of 
maybe alternate a little bit between a passive activity and an active one for the students. And so if we can uh, try to start to think like this, I think it can make us much more aware of the fact that, you know, attention is a limited resource. It fatigues over time. And I've got to recognize when things are starting to kind of fade away and, and think about how I'm going to kind of recapture that and to try to really build that into the structure of the experience. The third thing I would say is to think about the role that assessments play in cultivating attention, because if students know that something is going to be on an assessment, uh, if they're going to have to use it on an assessment in an exam or a paper or a presentation or whatever, they're more likely to pay attention to that um, because they recognize that it has a use for them. So I think instructors can be a little bit more deliberate about the use of assessments um, to support learning. One of the things that frequently happens here in the United States is that instructors give participation grades. So, you know, a class might have out of the 100% of the things that students are doing over the course of the semester, 10% of it might be set aside and marked for participation. And that just sort of depends upon how much students speak in the class. I actually think we could do something a little bit different there, which is, you know, have students do some kind of engagement activity over the course of the class period where they're getting together and working on something um, and give them credit for that. And it's just credit for doing it. So like that 10% or 15% that the instructor set aside for participation, set it aside for the concrete products that your students produce in class and give them credit for doing it. And as long as that little bit of credit is attached to it, that can help sort of students recognize, hey, this is important for me to do. And so I need to give my attention to it. And then once they've done that, then the preparation for it and the processing of it afterwards, you're all going to kind of be drawing more attention into that. So like the example I always give for me is, for example, my British literature class, which is a survey class, goes from 1800 to the present, might start with the Romantic Poets. And so, you know, a few times during the course of that unit, I'm going to give out students a poem um, on a piece of paper and say, I want you to start by annotating it. Tell me, like, circle the words that you think are important. Um, identify connections you see to the history, to the other poems that we've read. And they're going to do that in groups. That's going to take 10 or 15 minutes. They're going to participate in it. And afterwards, I'm going to just collect those things. And it's okay. If you did it, you get credit for it. And so to me, like that's something we need to do more of to get students actively engaged in producing some kind of concrete product in class and then giving them credit for that. And I think that can help drive up the general level of attention in the room as well. Nice. Engaging and kind of building that sense of community in the classroom, being quite deliberate in how you structure your different activities and having some variety of variants, treating it as if you're writing a, a play script perhaps, and the way you, you use assessment and, and, and kind of engagement participation activities, being a bit more thoughtful and deliberate perhaps about, about doing that. And I think some of those thoughts as well, you know, would equally apply to students when they're working on presentation assignments. I think in particular that second one about how you structure the content that you're wanting to deliver and thinking quite deliberately about how you might maintain the audience's attention uh, through the presentation you're giving through use of different modalities, perhaps, or mixing things up a little bit, having a really strong hook at the start that you want to know the answer to. Also, those kinds of techniques that you can borrow from the world of great storytellers. I think that's I think that's great. In terms of thinking about student presentations, my experience is that students often just come in, okay, I've got to just figure out the way to get this content out. And they often don't think about the fact that there's an audience out there. And, you know, even though they've had to sit through many presentations, it's hard for them to translate that into their own. So to really think about the audience, what does the audience need in order to kind of maintain their attention throughout this presentation? Teachers have to sort of gradually learn to do as well, right? Most of us when we are teaching, we're just thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I present the information? But then gradually over time, we learn to think, okay, actually, it's really about how are the students learning it? The important thing is not what I'm doing up here, but what's happening out there in the seats. 
Absolutely. There's just one final thing I wanted to, to ask you about, if I, if I could, and that's mindfulness practice, meditation. I often hear people talking about this as a, you know, a way to, to kind of build almost like attention, like a, like a muscle. I wanted to ask what, what your thoughts were on that. So this is actually a really interesting area of kind of research and thinking about um, the role that attention can play, especially in education. There has been a lot of sort of, especially here in the United States, there's been a lot of movement toward people trying to experiment with having their students do mindfulness activities in the classroom. Uh, And that often takes the form of like sort of breathing or meditation activities within the first few minutes of the class as a way to kind of set the ground for a class period. My wife is a kindergarten teacher. This past year, she's been teaching remotely. And so I've heard her using all her teaching strategies throughout the day because I was on sabbatical. So I was like, we were home kind of, you know, listening to each other's work all the time. And she would frequently do this with her own students, you know, say, okay, let's, we're going to stop and we're going to take three deep breaths, right? So like, you know, that's the short version for kindergarten students. But in secondary or higher education, you know, there have been people experimenting with this for a while now. The results of these kinds of experiments are are kind of mixed, actually. What they show is that, you know, in some cases it seems to help, but in other cases it it doesn't. And it doesn't seem to have any effect on long-term learning. So in other words, you might think that if students come to the classroom and you do a kind of five-minute, you know, relaxation or meditation or mindful activity at the beginning, that then they're going to be settled in and they're going to learn more effectively and that that would then show up on you know their exam scores or on however we measure their their longer term learning. The results don't really show that. Now, having said that, that's not necessarily a reason not to do it because there might be other benefits to that, right? Like I mean students are coming in and you know maybe stressed about various things and maybe just this is good for their well-being, right? To like help them relax a little bit at the beginning of class. There can be positive benefits for doing it, but I think teachers need to be clear-eyed about it. It doesn't seem to show the kind of long-term positive effects on learning that we would like or that I think many teachers seem to expect or hope that it's going to do. Now, having said all that, pulling it out of the educational context for a minute, I am actually a mindfulness practitioner myself, and I've absolutely seen it have a positive impact on my own life. But this is really important. Mindfulness really only has that kind of impact when you commit to it. You have to be willing to like do mindfulness practice for like 15 or 20 minutes every day and be doing it like under the guidance of someone who knows what they're talking about. Now that can be, you can do it through an app and there's plenty of good ones. I think there's a good one actually comes out of the UK called Headspace. You know, you can get uh, John Kabat-Zinn is one of the kind of founders of mindfulness practice and he has guided meditation recordings that you can use. So, you know, if you want to do it, and I, I absolutely recommend it to people in their personal life, there's been shown a lot of benefits to it for both physical and mental health, but you've got to be willing to commit to it. Most teachers, we're not going to give up that classroom time 15 or 20 minutes every day for students to be doing kind of mindfulness activities. So we shouldn't have the kind of expectations for it that you might read about when, you know, you're hearing about the benefits of mindfulness. Those benefits come from a serious commitment to it. What's happening in the classroom is typically very different from that. So again, I'm not saying not to use it, but just be clear-eyed about what you might be able to achieve with it. I think that makes sense. We can perhaps draw an analogy with physical exercise. I mean, this is almost a form of mental exercise. If you go for one 15-minute jog once in a blue moon, that probably won't make much difference to your uh, cardiovascular health. But if you commit to regularly running for 15, 20 minutes every single morning, then you quite quickly stack up some pretty significant benefits. I guess the similar would be true for, for meditation and, and mental health. Right. That's a great analogy. Actually. So you might think about a teacher saying, look, I'm going to have students do jumping jacks for the first two minutes of class, right? And, you know, that's that, that might have a positive effect. It's kind of like wakes everybody up and energize it, but it's not going to be like, it's not going to change their cardiovascular health, right? To do two minutes of jumping jacks every day. 
right? So like you've got to make a, a longer commitment to an exercise regime in order to have those kinds of longer term benefits. That makes sense. That makes sense. Look, this has been absolutely fascinating. I've been taking copious notes. <laughs> I wanted to ask, is there anything you feel we've we've skipped over in our conversation today that would be helpful to, to surface before we uh, start to wrap up? It's just a step back and just from a philosophical perspective, like one of the things I think, you know, both teachers and students can think about here is that, you know, in some ways, what we do in education is we are directors of attention, right? So like in the course of, you know, for example, as I mentioned, I'm teaching this class, which covers British literature from 1800 to the present. Dozens of thousands of works of literature were written at that time during that time period, right? My job as the educator is to identify the ones that are most essential and orient the attention of my students to those works. And even within the works themselves, to orient students' attention to the parts that matter. And the same is true of students as they're trying to think about, like, what am I going to study? They're making decisions about, actually, where am I putting my attention when it comes to this course material? So we are all kind of, you know, education is really a process of directing our attention to the things that are going to most benefit us, most allow us to be successful as learners or as teachers. So when we think about it like that, you know, attention is it's just so fundamental to learning. The more we kind of recognize that, I think the more deliberate we can be, both as teachers and learners, about creating structures, practices, and habits that cultivate good attention and that sort of, you know, enable us to continue to use our attention in ways that are going to be most helpful to us. So just, you know, keep thinking about that idea that, that we are, as teachers, directors of attention and that as students, as learners, um, have to learn to become directors of their own attention in a way that's going to be most helpful to them. Fantastic. We're all directors of attention in education and perhaps in life generally. Excellent. I think that's that's a wonderful note to, to end on. Uh, Jim, I always wrap up with my time machine question. So if, if you were able to have the luxury of uh, stepping into a time machine and zooming back to meet your 17-year-old self in the the schoolyard. What one piece of one or two pieces of advice would you most want to give him for helping him on his way in the in the academic sphere of life? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I went through this phase where, at that time, my sixteen year old self, I had already sort of decided that I wanted to be a writer, and so I had this reverential attitude toward literature and writing. And at some point, I made this decision: books were too important and valuable for me to write in, and so like I was going to just read and then just try to remember things and. Um, <laughs> That was a terrible idea because actually what we know that if you're the best way for you to engage with something that you're reading and want, really want to remember and learn and study later is to write, right? Like write in your books, take notes on what you're finding out. You can do that separately too, but the paperback books that I'm going to get from my, you know, used bookstore or whatever, those are not like uh, something that I really need to reverence as like a, a sacred object. I should be writing all over that thing, taking notes from, you know, underlining things, highlighting things. So that was something that it took me quite a few years, I think, actually, until my last year or two of higher education to start doing it, which I should have really been doing all along. So that, that's probably the best piece of advice I would give him. Go ahead, write in those books. It's a good idea. I think that's great. I think that's great. We had Chris Bailey on the podcast a little while ago, and he describes his approach to reading books. And, you know, the, the moment he gets a book, the destruction starts. He rips out the first page and uses that as a bookmark. And then, you know, highlighting liberally notes uh, scribbled all over the margins, you know, corners folded over to pages he particularly wants to come back to. So, you know, really seeing that book as a resource to get the most out of, not treating it like a, a reverent, sacred object. Though I completely understand <laughs> where you're coming from on that. I'm, I'm similar. Well, thanks ever so much. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Uh, really, really grateful for you giving up the time to, to come and talk to us today. For those wanting to find out a bit more about yourself and, and the work you do, your, your books perhaps, where would you signpost people to? 
So I am on uh, the web at just jamesmlang.com. I have a pretty active Twitter handle, so it's just at Lang on Course. I'm also on Instagram at jimlang7. So in all those places, um, you know, you get a little bit of personal stuff mixed in, but a lot of it is professional, both about teaching and learning, but also about literature as well. So feel free to join me at any of those places. Fantastic. And we'll put links to those in the show notes as well for people that want to want to reach out. So look, thanks so, so much once again. It's been really, really great to talk today. Yep. Thanks very much. Well, thanks again, Jim, for a really wonderful conversation. As I say, do check out the show notes for this episode in your podcast app for all the links just mentioned, including details of where you can get hold of Jim's book, Distracted, which is a really excellent read if you want to get more into the topics we've been talking about today. For now, wishing you every success in your studies, and I'll see you again next time. Thanks again for listening. Wasn't that wonderful? If you're feeling inspired, why not leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app? It would make our day. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon.